0: Sacred Footsteps presents Khayal Diaries, a series of personal accounts, narratives, and critical reflections on topics like Islamic history, culture, and travel. Join us as we showcase a global community of contributors, writers, and artists.
1: The Circle of Saints by Zara Chowdhury. Please note that this episode contains references to torture and death. I arrived at Masjid Khalil Rahman in Cape Town's District 6, just as the Avan for Isha was being called. Inside, around 15 men stood in a row to pray, with another row of 10 or so women behind them, and children dotted around the room. I was here for a vicar gathering that takes place every Thursday night after Isha prayer. Throughout the Muslim world and beyond, vicar gatherings typically consist of recitation of chapters of the Quran out loud, followed by litanies or poems in praise of God and His Messenger, peace be upon Him. Tones of Cape Town recitation and dhikr are unlike any other. It has a unique sound that you won't hear anywhere in the Muslim world. The history of this dhikr and of why it came to sound this way is a fascinating one, spanning centuries and continents. It's a story of imprisonment and enslavement, colonialism and resistance, of Sufi Tariqas, scholars and princes. It's a story of hardship and perseverance, but above all, of faith in God. again later. To tell this story, we need to first head into the hills of Cape Town. Yeah. A few days earlier, I had walked up some stone steps built on the hillside along the beautiful coastline of Cape Town. With a glistening sea behind me, I walked up the steps, 99 in total, I was told, like the 99 names of God.
2: I feel unfit. I'm a
1: runner,
2: but I have a hamstring problem.
1: Bill Geese, my Cape Tonian friend, and I were both a little out of breath as we reached the top, while my guide, Mohammed <laughs> Toffa, an older gentleman, was clearly unaffected by the walk up, despite his hamstring injury. Mohammed is a former journalist, born and bred in Cape Town. His work as a journalist saw him cover everything from sports news to the biggest political stories of the day, including the release of Nelson Mandela from prison. He works now as a guide in Cape Town. I met Bilkis through a mutual friend. This was the first time I'd met her in person, and before my trip was up, I would have dinner with her family, who served us a wonderful meal of traditional Cape Malay dishes, her family are a mix of different ethnicities, which, as we shall see, is the norm in Cape Town's Muslim community. so beautiful. Oh. So they say they're 1730. Sitting among the trees was a small single-roomed building with a small green dome. This was the maqam, or kramat as they are referred to us here, of an individual whose name was written above the door, Nurul Mubeen. There are numerous kramats like this one, dotted around the hills of Cape Town, each one housing the tomb of a prominent individual. As I would find out during the course of the next few days, each cremat is located in a stunning location of natural beauty, by sandy beaches and clifftops overlooking the sea, among green rolling hills, or hidden in the trees. There is even one in a vineyard, but we'll come to that later. They loosely form a circle around the city, and are fondly referred to as the Circle of Saints, affording Cape Town protection, as several people were to tell me. You may be wondering how on earth these magams ended up where they have, and who the individuals are who were honoured in this way. Well, this is where the story gets really interesting.
2: Okay, so so we are now on the Twelve Apostle Mountains, and uh, as you know, the, the Dutch brought brought many Malay slaves here from Malaysia, Indonesia, Madagascar, Ceylon, now Sri Lanka, and uh, other parts of East and West Africa. They brought them in here um, way back in the 17th century.
1: When the Dutch colonized the East Indies and beyond in the 1600s, they encountered resistance from the local people. Among them were scholars and political leaders, some say princes, and other influential individuals. To break the resistance, the Dutch colonial authorities imprisoned the worst of the troublemakers, i.e. those who propagated Islam or threatened commercial interests, and banished some to another Dutch colony at the time, the Cape. Among the enslaved were Indonesians, Malaysians, Sri Lankans and Malagasy. In fact, recent research carried out by historian Shafiq Morton has shown that more than half of those banished to the Cape by the Dutch were of Afro-Malagasy descent. The Muslim community in Cape Town today are descendants of these individuals, who arrived on the shores of the Cape more than 300 years ago. The Dutch East India Company required manpower for creating settlements in the Cape. Political prisoners and slaves from the East Indies, Sri Lanka and Malagasy, were all put to work, their numbers further supplemented with West African slaves. They endured brutal conditions.
2: Uh, following uh, the Dutch Reform Church, um, many of them uh, were tortured uh, because they they didn't want to change over to from Islam to 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 the to the Christian religion. And then many of them as absconded. They escaped from the city and they came here and they lived on the mountain here in. Uh, and on the mountain here, um, on the slopes of uh, the Twelve Apostles Mountains, now during the time we had uh, um, three great sehs that were uh, that buried here, and the main one was uh, Ser bin and he was uh, he was banished to Robben Island after his arrival here <laughs> because they said he was a troublemaker. <laughs> he was, uh, you know, um, uh, talking, uh, you know, preaching Islam and then they uh, to, uh, put him on, on, on Robben Island. Attempts
1: by the enslaved to escape are well-documented, including a premeditated and well-planned attempt led by an imam named Judan Topavan Chiribon from Java. The plan saw 23 slaves escape, a pregnant woman amongst them. Eventually, most of the escapees, including the Imam, were captured and faced dire consequences that included flogging, branding, the cutting off of nose and ears, and for some, death. The Imam himself was put to death in a horrific, torturous manner, and his body left to be consumed by birds. He is considered the first martyr of Islam in the Cape. In spite of the brutal fate that awaited escapees who were recaptured, desertion remained a common form of resisting slavery and colonialism. The enslaved were not allowed to practice their faith, let alone propagate it. But in spite of the risks, many chose to do both, and in the process, spread Islam in the Cape and ensured its preservation.
2: Allah works in, in such great uh, ways, you know. Um, they brought these people here as, as slaves and political, they were political exiles also came here. and. Uh, they didn't realise that they were bringing Islam here. So they actually brought Islam here that way.
1: The, the colonisers spread, spread Islam colonizers, They spread Islam
2: for us themselves.
1: Our next stop was the Kremad on Signal Hill, perhaps the best known of all.
2: It really is a cemetery with a view.
1: It really is. It sits with a glistening sea on one side and lion's head on the other upon our arrival we encountered a group of tourists who though not muslim had stopped to visit the magam nonetheless buried here inside the kramat is thought to be Sheikh Mohammed hassan Ghaibi shah al-qadri there are other graves dotted around the small building though it's not clear to whom they belong yeah so who who there was one here one on that side who were these individuals. I, 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 I don't have it. <laughs> don't even names. Just maybe like a, a disciple or a student or somebody
2: They're or all, they all together at the same time yeah. Okay.
1: It's nice that people still come and lay flowers and, and these, things. Uh,
2: there These these people buried on that side also. Oh okay. Hmm.
1: So when would the actual buildings have been constructed around the graves?
2: Um, uh, they, they came later in the, in, uh, that, that building, you know, when I grew up, it was in the 50s already that, that oh, one okay. they, that they, they were smaller and then they,
1: they I ended up visiting this Kramat a number of times on my trip. On my first visit, the sun was just setting, bright orange rays of light came in through the windows onto the grave at the centre of the otherwise dark room. To call this location idyllic would be an understatement. Close to Signal Hill is the Bokap neighbourhood, the old Malay quarter famous for its colourful houses. By On our way driving in, Muhammad stopped a number of times to say Salaam to friends. Bilgis explained how tight-knit the community here is.
2: Hello. Hello.
1: There are nine mosques within the small neighbourhood, including South Africa's oldest, the Owl Mosque. By the 1770s, the Dutch authorities turned a blind eye towards private religious gatherings, and when the new British administration took over from the Dutch 20 years later, permission was granted to turn a warehouse into the Owl Mosque. The land for the mosque was donated by Sarah van der Kapp, the daughter of Corridon van Ceylon, a freed slave from Sri Lanka, and the first freed slave allowed to purchase land here. The first Imam of the mosque was Imam Abdullah Qadi the Salam, more commonly known as Twanguru. An Indonesian prince, he was also a learned man of great influence, who first arrived in the Cape as a political prisoner. He was sent to the infamous Robben Island. While in prison there, he wrote down the Quran from memory to ensure its preservation in the Cape. That very Quran, written in his own hand, is on display inside the Owal Mosque in the Bo-Kaap. Tuan Guru's grave is located in a cemetery in the neighbourhood. Tuan Guru's dawah efforts are well known and were conducted within a context of intense Dutch Christian missionary activity. Due to the efforts of people like him, Islam steadily grew in the Cape during this period. And
2: um, the Malays had such a great impact on the Khoisan people, the Khoi and the Khoisan people here, at the Cape, and uh, they were so impressed with the, with the Islam that many of those people reverted to Islam. And uh, that is why, when you walk around in Cape Town, you see Muslim people. They look all different. Many of them that were from uh, that were born here. Their fathers, their forefathers, were Khoi. And
1: Less than a hundred years after the old mosque was opened, now under British colonial rule, there were a considerable number of Muslims in Cape Town. One British Christian missionary lamented the fact when he wrote, Mohammedanism is greatly on the increase in Cape Town. They have, I believe, five mosques in which they assemble for their worship. About 23 Mohammedans club together and rent a large house, to which they invite poor ignorant slaves to gain them over to their party. By this method, an alarming number have been persuaded to join them and render ten times more prejudice against truth and against all white people or persons called Christians than they were before. The masters say that such houses are dens of thieves and receptacles of stolen goods which the slaves steal from them. Perhaps this circumstance may induce masters to attend better to the instruction of their slaves which may ultimately prove a blessing and security to the colony. It is worth noting that this missionary considered any form of resistance against colonialism as anti-white or anti-Christian. We had two more stops to make before the sun set, so we headed off away from the coast towards the suburb of Constantia. As we drove along a highway, we passed District 6, a residential area that became synonymous with apartheid. It saw tens of thousands of its residents forcibly removed in the 60s and 70s, under the apartheid government to make way for white residents. In the 1830s, the area had grown after freed slaves took up residence there. Over time, it became an ethnically diverse community. Mohammed himself grew up in District 6.
2: Uh, area. Uh, was also very alive, like Bukab. even more than This is the way it all started, yeah, the bottom here. Mm-hmm. So, in 1960,
1: after the fall of the apartheid government in 1994, claims of former residents to the area were recognised by the South African government and pledges to rebuild destroyed homes were made. Older residents were given priority and former President Nelson Mandela in 2004 personally handed the keys to the first returning residents, two men in their 80s. 38 years after they had been forced out of their homes. It's a long process, however, with many still waiting to return.
2: Those people that um, don't want to move back, they can, claim, they can uh, uh, claim compensation. So my father took the compensation because he was of the opinion that they'll never get their houses. It oh. took very long, it's, uh, still, it's still struggling. So, well, um, uh, The third phase is now completed now, so people
1: have moved Though the apartheid government fell almost three decades ago, the divisions they created in society have been long-lasting. As a visitor in Cape Town, divisions along racial lines are still apparent, especially in relation to housing. The wealthiest areas are mainly white, and the poorest black. Everyone else, still referred to as coloured here, are in between. We arrived in Constantia, an affluent leafy green suburb with beautiful houses and old oak trees and a large 17th century vineyard, the last place I'd expect to find a maqam. We stopped at the entrance of the vineyard as a guard came over.
2: Hello sir, how are you? Fine by yourself? Good, good, thank you. We're going here to the farm here to the... To the um... What is it? Wine uh, tasting. No, no, the, the Kramat, yeah. The
1: Kramat, okay. The Kramat.
2: Oh, yes, uh, <laughs> Yeah, straight. Does it go straight there?
1: Yes, yes. The guard pointed towards a narrow road on the right, which was signposted with the word Kramat.
2: You know, when most of these kramats oh, you get the stream always. Yeah, yeah. yeah okay, thing, like, the, the
1: Like the other ones we'd visited, this one also had a small green dome. A stream trickled away next to the building, which was surrounded by trees. According to the Cape Mazara society, who are responsible for the upkeep of all of these sites, this is the burial place of Sheikh Abdur-Rahman Shah, Bishah, the last of the Malikan Sultans. He arrived at the Cape by ship on the 13th of May 1668 in chains. He was a man of power and influence, who was seen as a threat to the company, and so he was exiled.
2: Can we go inside?
1: Mohammed had explained to me that to his credit, the Dutch owner of the vineyard, instead of building over the grave, had partitioned it off and left it alone. There are two other cremats in Constantia close by. We paid our respects and then headed off for the final stop of our journey. We're heading outside the city to visit what is perhaps the most significant of all the sites thus far visited. The area, which consists of low-lying farmland, is known as Makassar, named after Sheikh Yusuf of Makassar, in modern-day Indonesia. Sheikh Yusuf is considered the founder of Islam in South Africa. Unlike some of the other individuals we've already encountered, his story is well documented. Unlike Cape Town, Makassar consists of low-lying farmland. As we drove closer, the Dome of the Kramat became visible. A small mosque was located nearby, built with Indonesian money, in honour of their notable ancestor. The whole enclosure, surrounded by a low wall and a gate, and sitting on a small hill, felt like the central point of a village. Everything else was built around it. Outside, Muhammad Tofa pointed out the graves of the other Imams who had been exiled alongside Sheikh Muhammad. And in a nearby cemetery for local people, Muhammad pointed out the grave of his grandmother. And the Dutch
2: martyrs, they, they realized that this guy is not an ordinary person, so they treated him with, with more respect oh, really? than the other prisoners. Oh, okay. Because he didn't come here as a slave, he hmm. came as a political prisoner. Okay. With 49 of his uh, followers, they, hmm. they came here. And uh, yeah, they set up this this community here. They started living here. So I was fortunate to spend much of my days here with my grandmother's buried here. Oh really? This is the cemetery here.
1: It's a beautiful place. Yeah. (laughs) So your grandmother's buried here.
2: She's buried here inside here.
1: Like all of the other kramats, and pretty much most well looked after makams around the world, there was a beautiful, sweet fragrance inside the room in which Sheikh Yusuf lay in rest.
2: But you can't uh, put
1: the smell on the phone. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> Mohammed had arranged for a local historian to meet us here at the Kramat.
3: And these ladies are from the UK. I'm from the UK. This is this is a, she's a local. From, from this is
1: <laughs> Ibrahim Roda, now in his 80s, though you would never guess it from looking at him, is a wealth of knowledge having spent decades researching in the archives, uncovering the history of the Muslims of a cape, his own ancestors. So, uh,
3: I think we must have been a shade. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: We sat underneath a shaded structure, which Muhammad explained was commonly found in Indonesia as a place for passers-by to stop and pray beneath, shaded from the elements. It's also why the conversation you are hear has a slight echo.
3: There was a shrine before this one, there was a shrine as early as 1829,
1: mm.
3: which is approximately a hundred years before the reconstruction of the place you see now.
1: Ibrahim related the history of the actual site. The Kremat here has been reconstructed a number of times. This particular building dates from 1929. It was built by an Indian Muslim by the name of Haji Suleiman Shah Muhammad.
3: Coming after to Sheikh Yusuf the guide. He fought the Dutch, in fact, he was born on the island of Sulawesi where the town of Makassar is. Mm -hmm. That is why this area is known as Mm Makassar. Born in 1646, uh, from a very early age under the tutorship of his family, very interested in in the study of Islam. And eventually, he left at the age of 18, he first went to uh, Aceh. You know Atzi with the tsunami, where Masid was standing alone? He studied there, and when he was 18 years old, he left Atzi, went to Yemen, studied in Yemen, and then he went to Mm Makkah. They say he also studied in Baghdad, and also in Istanbul, but there's no corroborative evidence of that. But he he stayed away for at least 20 years before he returned. By that time, the Dutch were trying to monopolize the Spice trade, Mm -hmm. even in the area where he came from. Especially the clothes and the silk mm. and whatever you had, the spices. But that's because of their military superiority. You know, they had the biggest, most powerful navy. They defeated the Portuguese. They defeated the English. But now they had the enemy, and those were the Muslims who were fighting them. And among them, there's the Sultan of of, of uh, uh, the Sultan of Banten, uh, Sultan Ageng, yeah, his own son colluded with the Dutch to depose his father. And they succeeded. But then they fought the Dutch and Sheikh Yusuf was on, on the... because he married the daughter of Sultan again. Uh, he was on the side and for a whole year he fought what they call the gorilla type of war, which the Afrikaners did here with the British during the Anglo-Boer War, you know. They could never catch him and he would disappear into the mountains and forests of Java.
1: Sheikh Yusuf was eventually persuaded by the Dutch to surrender on a promise of pardon.
3: They used his daughter as fate to convince him to give himself over. The Dutch renail on their word, and this is what the white men normally does, <laughs> wherever they colonise. So they locked him up in the castle in Batavia, which is Jakarta today. We the...
1: the Dutch still feared that Sheikh Yusuf could escape, and so exiled him to Ceylon. By this time, he was highly regarded, Due to his role in the resistance against the Dutch, so fearing his influence, he was banished to the Cape in 1694 at 68 years old. In just five short years, Sheikh Yusuf would ensure that the Dutch colonial authorities would live to regret their decision.
3: In that five years, most historians believe he is the founder of Islam because they came here with 49, but in the records of the Dutch, you find they say the numbers here at Zanfrit are increasing. But as I tell you, some of the runaway slaves would come here, search the city and embrace Islam. Some of the local slaves would come here
1: and they embrace Sheikh settlement soon became a sanctuary for runaway slaves. According to the late historian Ahmed Davids, it was here that the first cohesive Muslim community in South Africa was established. Here, the fugitive slaves and local converts from the Khoikhoi tribe were taught the reading of the Qur'an, and engaged in the spiritual practices which today form part of the religious traditions of the Cape Muslims. The community under Sheikh Yusuf was short-lived. He died just five years after arriving on the shores of the Cape. So eventually he died
3: in 1699 on the 23rd of May. He died, but Islam did not die. After him, there were other men.
1: The actions of men like Sheikh Yusuf and all of the Imams who came after him threatened the Dutch colonial project and caused economic disruption. They did this with few resources and very little means, knowing full well that their lives were at risk. In 1712,
3: the governor Simon van der Stel wrote to the authorities in Batavia, please do not send these political exiles to the Cape because they encourage the slaves to run away. Because when the slaves run away, There's no labor. When there's no labor, there's no production. Can you see the strategy of the imams in that particular period? Somebody would ask, was there never a rebellion? Yes, there there, there was. But it's another story uh, for another time. So that basically is the story.
1: I visited more Cremats, including those in Simonstown, but there are many, many more graves in the hills surrounding Cape Town, which I was unable to visit. The final Cremats were on Robben Island. The small island off the coast of Cape Town has been used as a colonial military base, a leper colony and a prison since the 16th century. The Portuguese, the Dutch and the British have all used it at some point due to its strategic location. Colonial Europeans clashed with locals continuously. The first prisoner on the island is thought to have been a Khoikhoi chief, imprisoned by the Dutch. There are two Muslim individuals buried on Robben Island. This is hardly a hidden history. If you visit the island, alongside figures such as Mandela and Robert Sobukwe, the guides talk about the arrival of Muslims as part of the programme. Since Robben Island was where many of these Imams were held in incarceration, it felt like a fitting place to end our story. Let's return to the District 6 Mosque. After the dhikr was complete, sweet treats were served. I cannot overstate just how welcoming the individuals here in this mosque were, and how good the food tasted. I sat down with Hassan Besta and Dawood Davids, who have been coming to this mosque since they were children. They told me that few of those who worship at this mosque now live in District 6. During apartheid, their families had been uprooted from the area, and most were never to return even after the fall of the apartheid government. But they have continued the tradition of their elders and travel to this century-old mosque every week for this gathering and for Jummah to ensure that it never goes empty and unused. I asked them about the unique sound of the dhikr and Ihsan began by explaining the circumstances under which the slaves were forced to hide their worship. At the time,
0: um, the, 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 the the Dutch was sort of forbid them to practice any form of religion so when they were um, when they were doing this uh, um, they, they, they were doing the dhikr in the form of a song as we've just done and the object of that was that the their masters who was the British and the Dutch they would think that these guys are actually singing So that's where the melodies came in and so on, but they were actually performing dhikrullah. Mm. So they were out in the fields and everyone was reciting the dhikr in harmony whilst their masters were thinking they were singing.
4: Mm.
0: But they were unaware and oblivious to the fact that it was actually them performing
1: The ratib of Imam al haddad is regularly recited here and around Cape Town in these same melodic tones. For those unfamiliar, Imam al haddad was a notable scholar and saint of the Ba'alawi-Tariqah or Sufi order from Hadramaut in Yemen. His ratib, which consists of verses from the Qur'an, various prayers recited by the Prophet Muhammad be upon him in Hadith, and other du'as is recited daily as a litany around the world. This is not a recent tradition in Cape Town. It goes back to Sheikh Yusuf of Makassar, who according to historian Shafiq Morton, not only visited Hadramaut but came into contact with Imam al hadad himself. The ratib has been recited here ever since. During my visit to Cape Town, I was impressed by the efforts of individuals to piece together and preserve the history of Cape Town Muslims. Historians, such as the late Ahmed Davids, whose home Muhammad Tofa had pointed out to me in Bokap, as well as Ibrahim Roda, Shafiq Morton and many others, have helped to ensure the legacies of great men such as Nurul Mubeen, Twanguru and Sheikh Yusuf of Magasar are understood and appreciated. In Sidi Ibrahim's own words, This area
3: here is is historically
1: rich, very rich, Mm.
3: but it's not been written by our own people, by the white men.
1: Yeah, that's...
3: So, we try to encourage youngsters.
1: It is a great irony of history, or perhaps rather for those of faith, a mystery of divine decree, that in their attempt to curb anti-colonial resistance, the Dutch inadvertently spread Islam further to the southern tip of the African continent. The courage of those who, knowing their lives were at risk, fought to resist colonialism and propagate and preserve their faith cannot be underestimated. The beautiful melodies of Cape Town Vicar are a testament to the courage, perseverance, and unshakable faith of the Cape Town Imams, whose graves form a ring around the city in symbolic protection. May God be pleased with them all.
4: You're a I'm with the lady, with
1: For more information on the Kramats, search for the Cape Mazar Society, who look after all of the sites. I would like to thank the worshippers at the District 6 Mosque for allowing us to record. A special thanks also to Bilkis Johnston and her family, Mohammed Tofa, Yasin Kippi, Ibrahim Roder, Dr Shafiq Morton and Dayan Peterson for all of their help. Find more details about references in our show notes. As well as the contact details of our guide, Muhammad Tofa, Much of the historical information contained in this episode can be found in Ibrahim Roda's own book, the details of which can be found on sacredfootsteps.com. I'll leave you now to enjoy the sounds of Cape Town Vicar. <laughs>